Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. My Uncle John would have been 94 in a few weeks if he'd come out from under the anesthesia at Swedish Hospital in Seattle last Sunday, but he didn't. Aunt Lanita said it was for the best, maybe a mercy even. John worked as a physician at Swedish for 30 years. In 1988, he was a year older than I am right now when he took a writing course at the University of Washington and wrote his first poem. He kept writing those poems for the rest of his long life, but I think his first one was one of his best. Among delicious and Macintosh, six Granny Smiths, purchased by one who knows a homing son's hunger, durable fruit passing through an old wooden bowl. It's a love poem. It's not about the love of apples, though, not primarily at least, and they take their apples pretty seriously out in Washington State. The poem is about a mother's love for a son and a husband's love for his wife's love for their son. No one in their household, you see, liked green apples except my cousin Matt. So when Matt came home from college, Lenita never failed to have a few Granny Smiths waiting for him in the old wooden bowl on the counter. Durable love, passing through a moment as something we can see and touch and taste. Well, I wanted to say something about my Uncle John today because he was an important person in my life, but I also just kind of wanted to begin with something sweet and lovely before we delve into that terrible and terrifying parable Jesus told in Matthew 21. I will put a pin in the idea, though, that love is always always involves an attention to the hungers and loves of someone else. If I stay trapped only in what I find to be good, a green apple will never show up in my fruit bowl, will it? So, the parable. It's a familiar one, but it's not a story many preachers would choose to preach on if they got to choose. I only chose it because I thought you might not want to hear a ten-point sermon on the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Let's take a look at it. Now, by the 21st chapter in Matthew, things are getting pretty intense. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem triumphant on a donkey and a colt as the crowd spread their cloaks and palm branches on the road. We're we're entering Holy Week, in other words. When he gets into Jerusalem, he immediately goes to the temple and turns over the money changers' tables, saying, God's house of prayer has been made into a den of robbers. By any objective standard, it makes a lot of sense then when the chief priests and elders ask, By what authority are you doing these things? After he essentially says, I'm not going to tell you, Jesus tells two parables. The first is the one we heard last week about a son who says he will go do the work he's been asked to do in the vineyard, but doesn't, and another son who says he won't do the work in the vineyard, but he does. And then he tells the one we just heard. It seems like there's a whole lot of disruption of authority going on in this chapter. I should remind us that when we read that Jesus is challenging the chief priests and the elders, this is not Christians versus Jews. 
when we read a story, everyone in the story is a Jew. When we read the story in a Christian context, the image you should insert for the priests and rabbis is whoever happens to wield some kind of official religious authority in your world. In other words, you should probably be thinking of someone more like me, not my friend Micah Greenstein. Keep this in mind when we say that authority is being disrupted by Jesus as he raises this question of what faithful leadership ought to look like. So, in today's parable, there's another vineyard, but this one's been leased out to tenants. When the owner sends slaves off to collect the produce, the tenants kill them so they can keep the profits for themselves. After losing three slaves, the owner says, surely they'll respect my son, but the tenants are such thoroughly bad eggs in the story, they actually think if they knock off the son, they'll get not just the profits of the harvest, but the whole inheritance. It ends with those wretched tenants being put to a miserable death and the vineyard being leased out to someone else. Someone else will get to be in charge. Now remember that we're moving into Holy Week. That being the case, the story seems a little on the nose, don't you think? Jesus, who some call the Son of God, is about to be handed over and to be killed by the Romans, even though more and more people thought he was sent by God to do the same redeeming work among Israel that the prophets who came before him had tried to do. He's going to be the son who ends up getting killed, isn't he? And then, well, let's see. And then God, the father slash vineyard owner, is going to come swooping in to set things straight and will put those miserable Roman wretches to a miserable death after his son gets hung on the cross, right? No, actually, that's not how the story happens. It's not what happens at all. The son gets killed, but from the cross he doesn't say, my dad is really going to let you all have it when he gets wind of this. Heavenly armies do not descend and wreak violent havoc on the empire, so the good people in the story live happily ever after. What happens is that the son from the cross looks out at the ones who are crucifying him and says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Apparently, even in the most extreme and awful situation imaginable, there is a form of love that can even then look up from its own hurts and needs and wonder what the real story might be about its persecutors. It wonders what they might really need or desire deeper down in the broken lives that have led to this. Incarnate love suggests to God that they might need forgiveness. That's how Holy Week plays out. Why did the parable end like it did? Well, in my little synopsis, I left out something that's easy to overlook in the story. Did you notice? Jesus didn't actually say that the landowner would put the wretches who killed his son to a wretched death. He just asked the people listening to the parable what they thought would happen. The religious leaders are the ones who say that the vineyard owner is going to come and set things violently straight. And Jesus doesn't say, yep, that's exactly what's going to happen this Sunday when I'm resurrected. What I think he says in a way is, Well, if that's how you finish this story, 
then you can't be in charge. Your authority needs to be taken away. Because violent forms of justice are not what fruits, the fruits of God's kingdom look like. At the forum earlier this morning, Ardell and I talked a little about our recent pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. For those who don't know, El Camino de Santiago is the way of St. James. This trip was to raise money for an organization Ardell started called the Partners Path that offers soul care for spouses of Episcopal clergy. We, we walked the last 70 miles or so of the French route across the north of Spain twice, once with a group from Little Rock, once with a group from Calvary four years ago. This time we took a different route starting on the border of Portugal, as a second Calvary group did back in 2019, meeting our group in Santiago that year. On the Portuguese route, the town we reached on the fifth day of our walk is called Padrão, the namesake of these wonderful green peppers we'd been eating at most of our dinners along the way. Now the people of Padrão will tell you that their town is just as worthy a goal for a pilgrimage as Santiago is. For it was in Padrão that St. James is believed to have first preached the gospel in Spain. You can climb up the hill and see a pile of boulders on which he's said to have stood when he did. In the church of St. James, down on the river Sar, the altar is built on top of the stone to which James is said to have tied his boat and come ashore. The ancient stone's actually visible underneath the altar in a kind of little alcove. Like many of the churches in Spain, the nave is surrounded by smaller altars, one with souls depicted in the fires of purgatory, another atop a glass casket with a statue of a corpse within it. Strange sights for a Protestant boy like this one. But the strangest of them all was in the back of the church, where St. James himself is depicted atop a white horse with a sword in his hand. Beneath the horse's hooves were invading moors that Jesus' disciple was in the act of slaying. Not all the Camino's legends are so innocent, you see. For it's said that 800 years after James's martyrdom in Jerusalem, he appeared in the sky on a horse during an invasion from the south. Legend says he killed 60,000 Moors on a single afternoon, turning James the Apostle into James the Moor Slayer. And there it is again, isn't it? We lost sight of the way of love, and finish Jesus' story with, we will put those wretches to a miserable death. Once again, it seems like Jesus might shake his head and say to us Christians, well, then you cannot be in charge. Not in my kingdom in which love and forgiveness will be extended even to the enemies. Of course, it's tempting to look down on the people of Padron smugly and self-righteously myself. We have no such statues in our church at Calvary. We don't go in for creepy saint-worshipping stuff either. What's the matter with these people? Which actually is the question love would ask if the question is genuine, not rhetorical. What is the matter is a worthy question if we ask it as we'd ask it of someone we love. What's the matter, friend? What's going on within your heart or your history that would have brought you here. 
The truth is, I know next to nothing about the lives of the people growing their peppers along the banks of the river Sar. Don't get me wrong. The statue needs to go, as does the legend. But the question Jesus keeps pressing upon me and upon all of us is, what does it look like for us, here and now, to set aside our confident, violent visions of what we think would set things straight and ask what love requires of us? Ask perhaps what these strangers to us might actually need in their lives to make those lives a little more whole. You might even say that the work Jesus calls us to is to stop filling up the old wooden bowl on the counter of my life with only what I need and only what I love and to learn the needs and loves and stories of people I'm called by this same Jesus to love. Even my enemies, he says. Especially my enemies, his story says. How, I think he still asks us, how will you learn to set aside yourself long enough to see what six green apples might feed the body and delight the soul of somebody else? If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.